0: This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, I have a conversation with Christiana Mbakwe, who wrote a piece for us after Charlottesville asking why newsrooms don't cover white supremacy the same way we treat other terrorist ideologies. Then we get into a bit of news business with a look at the end of an era at the Village Voice and a shakeup on the LA Times masthead. Finally, we'll discuss the tragic death of Kim Wall, a Columbia Journalism School graduate and a talented reporter gone far too soon. Hey, Christiana. Hey. You can hear me?
1: Yes, I can hear you.
0: Awesome. Um, and it sounds pretty quiet there, which is great.
1: Yes. I have um, hijacked Hassan Minaj's office. He's not around this week, so I've just snuck in here because this will be the most quiet, quiet part of the building. Okay, great. Um, I'm
0: now joined by Christiana Mbakwe, who's a freelance reporter and a researcher for The Daily Show. Christiana recently wrote a really good piece for us at CJR asking why newsrooms don't cover white supremacy like they do ISIS. And Christiana, I, I wanted you to explain a little bit more about your argument and what you really are getting at when you talk about white supremacy as a terrorist ideology.
1: Yeah, sure. So if we actually look at the data about extremist groups and attacks on U.S. soil, um, we know that Islamic terrorist attacks are actually outnumbered by white supremacists and right-wing groups by about two to one. Um, and there's some great reporting on this issue um, done from like organizations that study hate groups. And and despite that, because of obviously the tragedy of 9-11, when most Americans and most people in the West think about acts of terrorism, they think about Muslims. Um, And what these things like Orlando and 9-11 do actually distort the broader picture. And it has always struck me that newsrooms haven't actually been looking at the data, they haven't actually been looking at trends, especially over the last for years of what's happening and about basically the the power of these right-wing fringe groups that thrive on the internet and we are seeing the impact of these groups, Um, whether we look at Dylan Roof and the tragic events in Charleston or if we even look at the the older man that was killed in New York recently when a man travelled up from Maryland to kill him. And I think the approach has been in newsroom to treat these things as disconnected events um, but my feeling is and a lot of the research shows that it, they are actually connected and they're a symptom of the ideology of white supremacy and we are seeing right wing and militia groups and I think the Vice documentary actually showed that in a very vivid way who are actually being caught up in this rhetoric and are causing real physical harm.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the piece the idea of having a beat reporter for this uh, this sort of group where we talk about questions such as how do these people get radicalized? Where are they learning this sort of information? Who are they and where do they come from? You know, there was a recent piece in GQ by Rachel katsy that was an incredible look at Dylan Roof, but it seems to take a, a moment like that, a terrible event like what happened in Charleston to bring out that sort of reporting. So what you're suggesting seems to be a more focused and consistent, look at these groups, right?
1: Absolutely. I think it's quite funny because I've been asking this quest- question on Twitter since the Dylan Roof incident. I've been like, where is the definitive Dylan Roof profile? I still hadn't read it, and like, interestingly it came out a few hours after CJR published my piece, and um, I was quite disappointed that it hadn't been done by any of our papers of record or what we would consider magazines of record. Um, and I think what Dylan Roof does is kind of like, yes, that creates a moment where we can discuss the bigger picture things, but I really think that it needs to be newsrooms need to look at it And have reporters that cover it like a beat, just like we look at ISIS. There needs to be a level of expertise, a level of understanding to really cultivate sources and create a network and be able to approach the topic in a nuanced way. I don't think it's the type of topic that you can have a reporter on it for a few weeks and then you leave it. It really needs somebody to consistently be studying this thing.
0: Well, you mentioned the coincidence of the Gansa piece coming out right after you wrote your piece. Um, I also noticed that the HuffPost hired Luke O'Brien, who is going to be reporting on fringe movements, I guess, which would include movements on the left, but also, I would assume from what Lydia Paul Green said, also movements on the right.
1: And I think that's really important. I think these are great signs. I just hope that this is a consistent that that's just my hope. Um, um, my fear is that for the in the moment we start hiring people, we have the conversation. But I I don't think it's something cons- that should just be ha- happening now. Um, we know that there are other Dylan roofs out there. It, it'd be irresponsible to think otherwise. And I think it should be said that really the most consistent reporting over the years has come from David Newark at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they have effectively are the authority, authority on this um, on, on this topic and. I think it's also that's an indictment on newsrooms that the the authority, we can't say that we can't name numerous newspapers who have been doing that work. But I do know ProPublica um, have a project that they've launched recently that will be looking at, you know, hate groups in, in particular in the right wing. So things are happening, but I just don't. My fear is that it's going to be treated like race issues are treated generally in the media, so Baltimore happens, Ferguson happens, there's an uprising somewhere, and it's like, okay, we have to be do a huge piece, um, and then we leave it alone. Maybe we do a piece that tracks police killings, and then nothing else is happening i I think for a topic of this important, we really just need reporters consistently covering um, it
0: yeah, one of the other things you mentioned was this idea that. What happened in Charlottesville? What happened before that in Charleston? This wasn't a shock to some people in America, that there are people of color who understand these forces in a way that, to be frank, someone who is white and perhaps lives in a quote unquote liberal enclave just doesn't. Do you think that the makeup of newsroom leadership is also a part of why this topic doesn't get the attention that you're saying it should?
1: Absolutely. I think diverse newsrooms, whether it's diverse in terms of cultural background, ethnicity, or even ideology, just mean that you just have a mix of views and vantage points. And I think that people, of, I know as a black woman myself, that there are experiences that I'm intimately familiar with that, other colleagues in the newsroom may not be. Um, and we know that newsrooms are lacking minority perspectives, um, not just on a reporter level, but in terms of leadership level, people who will be assigning and approving stories. And I think that that disconnect is reflected in the coverage, and I think actually the sense of urgency. Um, um, I, I attend church most Sundays, and I remember the Sunday after Dylan Roof um, occurred. It was the first time I walked into a church and I was afraid. I didn't know what, how that service would end. Um, and I don't know if there, were, there are white churchgoers who felt the same way. And I think that just that sense of fear, that sense of it could be me, I don't think it necessarily clouds your objectivity, but it, me, it creates a sense of urgency and a, t- a sense of intimacy to a story that somebody who may be white and liberal in New York may not have the same sense of fear when they're going around in the world. And, and I think that needs to be reflected more in our newsrooms.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great piece. It's a really strong argument that you made. I would encourage everyone to read it, and we will put it in the show notes. But Christiana Mbakwe, thanks so much for coming on and talking through it with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor.
1: Hey, Pete,
2: I have a serious dilemma. I am in need of a really good book.
0: Well, that's convenient, because I have in my hand a new, fascinating story of America's pioneering broadcast journalist and global adventurer, Lowell Thomas, in The Voice of America. Tom Brokaw calls Voice of America a lively account of a legendary life. So, make read The Voice of America, new from St. Martin's Press. Turning now to the business of news, I'm joined by CJR senior editor Christy Chisholm. Earlier this week, the media world, at least here in New York, was lamenting the end of an era... So, Christy, tell us what was going on.
2: Well, The Village Voice announced that it's stopping print publication.
0: Yeah, a a kind of giant of the New York print media scene, been around since 1955, will, at some unnamed date in the future, go out of print and shift entirely to digital.
2: It's not just a giant in the New York media scene. It's also a giant in the world of all weeklies. Um, I I come from the all-weekly circuit, and so at least— Shout out
0: to the Albuquerque— what?
2: Alibi the, uh, w- the not alibi. The, the weekly alibi oh, is actually it. the name the weekly alibi it used to be called new city publications long ago uh, and it's been the weekly alibi for quite some time but anyway so i yeah i got my start in journalism at the alibi and i just know that i used to really look up to, kind of idolize the village voice. And so it's just, I don't know, something about them ceasing print publication. I think it hits a little bit harder than, you know, it's not like they're going out of business. I actually think it's a good move on their part. It makes sense, but it does kind of, it does emotionally signal the end of an era.
0: Right. It seemed like it was a lot of nostalgia being shared by journalists and readers of The Voice. But I I wonder if this is really a, I mean, it's certainly a sign of the troubles that any newsprint outlet is having. But is it really a sign of the death of The Voice? I'm sure on one level, there are people who will be disappointed they can no longer pick up a a tangible copy of The Village Voice at their corner newsstand. But isn't this the option that many alt-weeklies are choosing and kind of the only option for survival?
2: Absolutely it is. I mean, for a while, the all weeklies weren't sure if they could survive without print products for a while because the whole model was that, well, you had to pay for your daily newspaper. You didn't have to pay for an alt-weekly. It was free. You would pick it up in coffee shops. You'd pick it up wherever. You would see what was happening that night and the events listings and then, like, read about what was going on in your city. And the, the
0: Internet kind of destroyed that, right?
2: Well, it <laughs> the Internet destroyed a lot of things as it created a lot <laughs> of things. Um, so, yeah, so the alt-weeklies really kind of lost their place. And I don't know that anybody really... Picks up alt weeklies when they're walking around the city anymore. Or that. But but at the same time, to go back to your original question, is, is, I don't think that it's like sounds the death knell for the voice. I mean, their digital readership has been rising.
0: Yeah, they redesigned their page in May. There, we should mention that the ownership that made this decision is Peter Barbie, a Reading, Pennsylvania-based newspaper owner whose family's been in media, as he noted, for centuries. I just wonder if the Village Voice, as a tangible object is something that matters anymore to anyone under, say, 35 years old. It seems to me like I grew up hearing about The Village Voice as a legendary paper where you had people like Wayne Barrett and you launched the careers of Colson Whitehead and people like that, these legendary journalists and writers. But I didn't feel like it was a vital part of my news diet when I moved to New York in the same way that I did feel like Gawker or Gothamist, these online kind of gritty opinionated sites were. And I just feel like The Voice has lost some ground to those type of places. Obviously, Gawker no longer around, but to those type of outlets. And I wonder if this shift to digital is their last chance to kind of regain some of that territory.
2: I don't know. Last chances. I mean, who knows? But it's definitely a chance for them to catch up. I mean, if they can really devote their resources that they were putting to print into really awesome, in-depth investigative features and like the other kind of work that we love from all weeklies then they get absolutely regain their place in the circuit.
0: Right. Another paper trying to catch up is the L.A. Times, which completely revamped the names on its masthead this week. Devon Maharaj is out as editor and publisher, and he's being replaced by digital media veteran Ross Levinson as CEO and Jim Kirk recently of the Chicago Sun-Times as executive editor. This is a paper that is, in a lot of ways, the most important voice west of the Mississippi And it's done some great investigative stories. Uh, Some of the listeners might have read the piece they recently did on the USC medical school dean who was partying with (laughs) 21-year-olds and doing uh, a lot of drugs, apparently.
2: The Walter White of LA. Yeah, it
0: was an amazing series, right, that required a ton of resources, a ton of time from some really good investigative reporters. But even that seemed to cause controversy because there were reports in Variety and other places that These reporters had the story ready to go, and Maharaj had slow-played it, perhaps because of ties to USC leadership. And so Tronk, the parent company of the LA Times, stepped in and made a change. And so I, I guess for us in New York, where we study the media and definitely read the Times, what are your thoughts on what they need to do or what they're doing well and need to adjust to? I don't know. Have they been involved, in your mind, in the national conversation right now?
2: I don't think they have been. And I do think that that's changed. Maybe it's because I also used to live west of the Mississippi. And so maybe I was just more aware of the coverage that they had on national issues. But I do feel like, I don't know, ever since the election, it's like every day you're getting alerts from the Times and the Post and you're getting scoops all the time. And they're like, I mean, they're just like all over it. And I don't feel like I hear anything from the LA Times. And that's not to say that they aren't doing great work still. But it is to say that I'm, I'm, I'm just, as somebody who does pay attention to the media, I'd feel like I'm not as aware of it. So there's some part of the conversation that I do think they're missing. Maybe it's because they're choosing to focus more on what's happening in their city, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different strategy.
0: I think a lot of it is that their newsroom has been decimated by layoffs over the last decade. The number of staffers they have is, I think, one third of what it was a decade ago. It seems like based on stories that have come out, kind of trickled out over the last year about the morale inside the newsroom, even the LA Times' own story on this move cast the newsroom morale as flagging, I think was the quote they used. This was a change that was perhaps overdue. Maharaj was not a popular editor there. The L.A. Times has seen digital advertising revenues actually decline in this age where more and more people are getting their news online. So Trunk and the Times have some work to do on that front. But as people who love the media, I think we both want to see the L.A. Times recapture some of what it used to have.
2: Absolutely. And as somebody who grew up out west, too, I mean, that was... I don't know. The L.A. Times was always like a a beacon that we all looked to. And I just hope that it can regain its footing and reoccupy the position that it's held for so long.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that we're all hoping for. Finally, we end today on a sad note. Kim Wall, a 30-year-old graduate of Columbia's journalism school, was apparently murdered in Denmark while reporting on a story. The circumstances of her death have received international attention, but we wanted to focus today on what we've learned about Kim as a person. There have been several pieces around the web testifying to her curiosity and passion, and we've heard from former professors and classmates about just what a special person and professional Kim was. I spoke to several of her classmates and friends after a candlelight vigil held here at Columbia on Wednesday night, and you can read their remembrances in a piece we have up on her But I wanted to end with something that Professor Howard French, who served as a mentor for Kim while she was at school here, shared in that piece. He wrote, Remembrances can easily sound formulaic, but anyone who knew Kim understood that she had a very special spirit. She was alive in ways that most of us can only dream of being alive. She sparkled with a delightful enthusiasm about everything she undertook with such a ready, beaming smile. She dreamed big dreams, and she was unafraid of pursuing them absolutely unafraid. Kim's life merits celebration. She was very, very special and will be missed. So we'll end today on that note, and I would encourage everyone listening to go read the work that Kim did. She built an incredibly impressive career in a very short amount of time, and she will indeed be missed. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. And I want to thank Christy Chisholm for being here to chew over all of this with me.
2: Thanks for having me, Pete.
0: And also Christiana Mbakwe for calling in to talk about her piece, which, again, you can check out on CJR.org. As always, please tell your friends about The Kicker. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to this. We really appreciate the support, and we'll see you next week.